This is a Federal News Network podcast. If the nation learned anything in the last couple of weeks, it's that the process of voting is anything but simple. People overseas or people with disabilities can encounter logistics barriers to voting. The operations of elections, that's where the Election Assistance Commission comes in. Its chairman has just become a fellow of the National Academy of Public Administration. Thomas Hicks joins me now. Mr. Hicks, good to have you with us. Thanks for having me. And let's begin with the basics here. The Federal Election Assistance Commission, small independent agency, just review for us what it does, because I don't think it's that well known even within the government. Well, that's true. We're a small but mighty agency. We came about, we just celebrated 20 years uh, on October 29th of the uh, enacting legislation from the Help America Vote Act. Our agency, in a nutshell, uh, provides assistance to the states for the administration of elections, and we help voters with knowing what's in in improving the process overall and helping people with um, learning how to become poll workers and other aspects as well. So from voter registration to voting to actually counting the ballots, we give advice to the states. And the most important part that they say is that we've given out federal grants to to the states for for doing this. So the genesis lies in part then in the 2000 election where we had the, well, the famous hanging chads, correct, in Florida. Correct. And um, 357 members of the House and 92 members of the Senate voted for the bill to ensure that the things that happened in Florida that were highlighted by Florida wouldn't happen again. And I think our agency is doing a, a great job of ensuring that those things aren't happening. And as we speak, there are still states elections for governor and it took days for the senatorial races and still the House races. And in a advanced technological society like we have, why does this still take so long to do something well, that seems like a simple calculation? Right. And so I would say that it's it's functioning the way that it was uh, intended to. So, for instance, some of the states still allowed for ballots to come in. They had to be postmarked, but they had to be received by a certain date. And so those were still being counted. The other part of this is the results that we hear on election night are unofficial. And so we are going to uh, wait for every ballot to be counted, whether or not that's provisional, overseas, or uh, our military folks, and the ones that are done by mail that are received on time to be counted. And so it may take a little bit longer, but we want accuracy over hesitancy and speed. And you personally have a long-time interest in this, correct? Correct. My parents uh, used to bring me to the polling places in the... uh, late 70s and early 80s to watch them vote. And then um, I became um, enamored with the the process. And, you know, after 2000, decided that I really wanted to be a part of this and helped with uh, the actual writing of the legislation for the Help America Vote Act. Worked on the Hill for over a decade in the um, committee that oversaw the agency. And um, and now I'm here and uh, implementing and seeing the oversight of the uh, Help America Vote Act through through our agency. And as we are here now in 2022, just on the dawn of 2023, would you say that the original dream, not so much of the law that gave rise to the Election Assistance Commission, but civil rights voting legislation passed decades before that has realized full participation for those that want to vote? We still have some obstacles out there. The Help America Vote Act added a piece with allowing for those who have disabilities to vote independently and privately. But the AC has done studies 
to say that things have improved, but they're not great. And so we still want to strive to ensure that everyone who is eligible to vote can cast their votes and have those votes counted accurately. And tell us about the card you developed for those with disabilities. The card that we have, I was looking for one on my body here, but I I carry one with me wherever I go. Your listeners won't be able to see it, but I carry one wherever I go. It basically allows for those who have disabilities to know what their voting rights are, that they can bring anyone into a polling place to help them vote if they show choose, other than their boss or their union rep. They can ask for assistance. They have to be able to have an accessible voting piece of equipment to allow for them to vote independently and privately. And all of that is spelled out on this card. So, for example, someone who is blind that can't see the D or the R or the name or something or where the box is can have assistance in actually doing the uh, marking as long as that person can be construed as totally neutral and just there to help the person make their mark. Well, that person can be whoever they choose to do that, whether or not that's they ask someone in the polling place to help them do so or to bring someone with them. But I do want to point out that one of the aspects for being able to vote independently and privately is for them to be able to possibly put on headphones and be able to guide them through that voting process without assistance overall. So there is technology out there that can in effect, talk to the person as a blind person hovers over different parts of the of the ballot? Yes. It's similar to um, if anyone goes to any ATM machine, you'll see that there is a jack there that allows for people to plug in the headset for ATM machines. And that's the same for voting equipment. You can plug in a jack, put, put your headset on, and um, it'll guide you through that. We're speaking with Thomas Hicks, chairman of the Election Assistance Commission and now a new fellow of the National Academy of Public Administration. And that is a good perch to pursue the kinds of things you have been pursuing for your career. What are your plans for Napa? Do you have any assignments yet? Or I know you were just inducted a few days ago. <laughs> well, I've, uh, I've looked at the overall committees that they have, and there are a few that I'm, I'm looking forward to joining. Um, whether or not that's the government ones or the ones that they are going to set up for for voting overall. But I would love to be able to give them advice and and guide them through to do this so that we can improve the process overall. Any way that we can make voting better and improving it, I think, is a, a positive aspect. And I want to thank Napa for electing me into the new fellowship. And um, I look forward to the challenge. Looking at, again, at the U.S. voting system, I mean, for a couple of centuries, people have around the world have looked to the United States for guidance and inspiration, really, on how to conduct government, how to conduct elections. Do you feel that's still the case? I mean, we've had some rough years with respect to what happened in 2020 and people still even denying the results and all of this. We had 2000, which was disputed and so on. Are we still the guiding light and still the gold standard, do you think? I believe we are, and I believe that every election that occurs, there's going to be some sort of issue that that happens. I equate it to the interstate highway system. No matter what we do, there's still going to be accidents on the road. But what we need to do is to continually improve that process so we can minimize as many accidents as possible. And if we see those accidents, we correct them as, po- as quickly as possible. But I b- do believe that the United States is still the gold standard for elections around the world. And 2020 functioned well. It was one of the hardest elections that I've heard election administrators have to deal with. They they ran basically two elections. One, 
for those folks who wanted to show up in person to make sure that they could do so safely and um, cast their ballots accurately, but also they convert it to a mail-in balloting. Um, the, even though that's been done since the Civil War, it had been scaled up very quickly for these administrators to do. So they were running basically two elections in 2020. And so uh, the other aspect that I would talk about is that people from around the world still come to the United States to observe our elections, to see what things they can take back to their home countries. And so I noticed that uh, this past election, that there were folks here from Australia and Sweden and other first world countries as well. And even though they have democracies and function well with their elections, they wanted to see what else we they could learn from our, our system. It sounds as if the EAC itself has regular direct interaction with voting officials in other countries. Yes. So several uh, countries have come over from Africa and Asia and Europe to talk to us. And we've been able to either talk to them in person um, in their you know home countries as well, or uh, through um, the technology of Zoom. Um, it's been really fascinating to be able to hear about their issues that they've occur- that have occurred and giving them advice on how to improve the process from seeing what we do here in the United States. And by the way, the EAC itself has democratically appointed and Republican appointed members. Do you all get along with one another? We're a family, so we fight, but we we still get along. I would say that 95% of the stuff is nonpartisan and, and, and so forth. And um, it's more about making sure, like any family, that the best things occur that, that we can work towards. And I think that um, as long as we uh, can work towards a common goal, and that's what our enacting legislation says, of helping administrators with the administration of elections, we are doing that well. And I think that, you know, we can we can always work towards a little bit better, but I think things are, are going pretty well. Thomas Hicks is the chairman of the Election Assistance Commission and a new fellow of the National Academy of Public Administration. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Vote for the Federal Drive. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then 
sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there, um, I didn't. I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know. In retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving, all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. So he thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of 
coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so while sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I I totally agree and understand that. It isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? And I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town, where we certainly did when we were younger. But 
I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So, so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate. And then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply. Apply a little splash when your windshield's getting dirty. Just apply a little splash when your windshield's full of grime, bugs, dirt, and snow. Just use a little splash and be safe on the road. Splash, splash, splash. Apply a little splash when your windshield's getting dirty. Just apply a little splash.